Welcome to Dr. Thoughts, a smart, driven, and fabulous podcast by Drs. Ryan LaValle and Kalia Johnson, where sometimes it's about occupation and sometimes it's just sassy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Dr. Thoughts. It's everybody's favorite academic mama, Dr. Kalia Johnson, always here with my favorite community-engaged research collaborator, Dr. Ryan LaValle. <laughs> I told you it was kind of long. <laughs> I love that. I feel like that's also a cool uh, CERC, uh, community-engaged, wait, what was it? Now I've lost Community-engaged <laughs> research collaborator, CERC. Yeah, a CERC. I- I'm a CERC, you know. Yeah. It almost <laughs> sounds like it. a nationality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, sort of. I guess so. Oh, but we good are, to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for always hanging out with me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> so, but everybody, we are also joined today by Dr. Ann Kirby, who is newly now promoted to Associate Professor of Occupational Therapy at the University of Utah and our friend, and she's cool, and if you don't know her, you're missing out. What's up, Anne? <laughs> Hi, so happy to be here. Yeah, and full disclosure, we all sort of went to school together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, we'll definitely get into that. I don't know, maybe even share an inside joke or two. Maybe we'll see if if, if we <laughs> let people sort of enter that part of our lives, right? Um, but, but yeah, and so you know, uh, there's a long-standing tradition. I say long-standing. We're doing this season two, but anyway, long-standing tradition of Dr. Thoughts where everyone names themselves as a favorite. So I have now named Ryan as our favorite <laughs> Cirque. So what would you name yourself <laughs> as? Everybody's favorite what? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, the word tall comes to mind. So I'm six feet tall. Um, that seems to stand out. Uh, oh, so everybody's favorite yeah. tall drink of water? Is yes. that it? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It is very That works tall. on so many levels. I feel like you were always pretty hydrated, weren't you? <laughs> yes. Well, um, this is a an aside, but I was just telling someone that I had a, a physician and I use that term now because of your podcast, um, once <laughs> tell me, he said, you know how a lot of women walk around with water and it's really annoying. And I was like, what? And he said, you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't think it's annoying, but I it's guess I'm smart. Water. it's healthy. Yeah. And I'm glowing kind of skin. Surprised to hear that a physician would label that as annoying. Like health is annoying okay I don't know I don't know that is hilarious but yes so all of us are graduates of the doctor philosophy program in occupational science at UNC Chapel Hill so that's how we all know each other Anne and I actually shared an office um took lots of naps in that office I think had lots of really good snacks uh, probably great conversations about John Dewey and uh, yeah, just I think all the things that PhD students tend to do 
we did in that office. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a refrigerator full of alcohol, but probably everything else. <laughs> you know what's funny? I also had that same office. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> That's right. Tradition. Yeah, I think I took Anne's spot in that office when you left. And because we only had like one or two years of overlap. And my main memory was that you were the originator of the Dewey Boner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, for those of you who don't know what that is, <laughs> which I'm assuming most of you don't, no, um, I think it's so. that moment when someone's describing a Dewey and philosophical uh, concept or idea, and it just hits exactly what you need, and you just get what is called a Dewey boner, according to Dr. Ann Kirby, coined <laughs> and trademarked. <laughs> I, 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 I often say like you know, people often ask that question, if you could meet anyone alive or dead, who would it be? And I think my whole life, I always thought, I don't know, I don't care. There's no one I want to meet. <laughs> and then, like, I started reading John Dewey, and I was like, John Dewey! And I just had this, like, real passionate uh, response. And and I did refer to a Dewey Boner on Facebook, made a lot of my classmates uncomfortable, but I'm glad <laughs> it lives in infamy. It does. It does. I, I still say that, that sometimes when, when I'm talking about Dewey and philosophy, as you do. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Yes. Yeah. We should write a paper about it. <laughs> it has to be in the title if you do. <laughs> oh, it could be yeah. a paper about Dewey and sexuality. Yes, <laughs> I like it. We can get Rahale like involved. It'll be so great. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, y'all have to make that happen because now I'm like, yes, that's 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 a thing. You have to do it now. You have to do it. So now well, that we've chatted that is a little not bit, you. yeah. <laughs> we chat a little bit now about Dewey boners, but I would, um, Dr. Ann Kirby, you could take a minute and just tell people a little bit more about you. I've already, you know, said that you've recently. Um, been promoted and received tenure as an associate professor of OT, but tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. Well, I'm I'm a longtime listener, first time guest um, here on the podcast. So thank you for having me. Um, I am an occupational therapist. I most of my research has been um, with uh, autistic people um, and their families, and I'm eager to chat a little bit more about that um, later. And my big news, I guess, is I'm about to spend um, a year on sabbatical, and I'll be living in Ireland and uh, connecting with other autism researchers and um, autistic organizations and uh, things like that around Europe. So I'm super excited about that, but also in the midst of rapidly packing up uh, my house and selling things and getting prepared for that, that big transition. Yeah, so if you're an Irish listener or occupational scientist or OT, definitely hit um, Dr. Kirby up when she gets there. Um, but also, I wanted to just have you comment a little bit. Um, you know, this is a topic that I think comes up quite often in the autism world, but it you're using identity-first language when you talk about autistic people. So maybe talk about that a little bit in, in comparison to people-first language and why you're you're using that language. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. And it does come up a lot. And as I think all of us did, um, I learned about person first language in occupational therapy school. So 
always, you know, people first. Um, but, you know, in my practice, I kind of saw over time that that's not how a lot of disabled people talk about themselves. Um, you know, outside of the autism world, uh, I worked in a, a military hospital for a few years. And, you know, I would say a person with an amputated leg, they call themselves amputees almost exclusively. And, um, you know, I was always really pushing towards that language that I was taught in school, but it didn't always reflect um, what I was hearing in the community. And then um, as I've been doing autism research over and over and over again, um, we've heard from autistic community members that that they, the majority of the community does prefer um, identity first language. So saying autistic, some people um, use it as a, use autistic as a, a noun. So they call themselves like autistics um, and other kind of variations of that identity first language, but really owning that autism is a central part of um, their identity and personhood and not something that they sort of carry around as luggage is sort of a, an image that is sometimes talked about. So it's actually been, you know, quite an adjustment for, for me to kind of hammer that out of my brain, but um, you know, it's important to the community. And so that's what I have have totally transitioned to. So I I try not to use person first language anymore unless uh with that community in particular, unless that's something um that someone I'm uh, directly working with uh prefers. Yeah, uh, I think it, 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 yeah. I was, I was just gonna say I feel like it really is a skill that we have to develop as therapists and um educators and sort of just people who work with people is that listening to mirror. Um, and hearing what people are saying and just using their language to build rapport and build respect. Mm -hmm. And it might not even be language that you necessarily agree with, but it's maybe not the time to do a linguistic education moment, <laughs> um, you know, when you're in a therapy session or something like that. So listening and, and sometimes you have to use language that you don't necessarily agree with to make sure that you're, you're just respecting people and moving forward. So mm -hmm. um, I think this is a, a very popular and public example that's coming to fruition in, yeah. in the OT world. And I'm yeah, not foregrounded uh, our, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Kirby, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, it it is important to say, though, that person-first language, I think, uh, came out of disability advocate movement. So, you know, there were disability advocates really asking for person-first language. And so I think it's a great example of sort of history of how we responded to that as a profession, as a field, but we have to be able to move on from that if that's not what the community wants now. It's sort of like we got stuck on the first thing we were told. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and I was just all... going to mention that it's, I think it's great that we foreground our conversation today with this so that as people are listening, um, you know, we don't get these, um, you know, sort of critiques about language and and personhood or whatnot. Because um, as, you know, Ryan mentioned, um, listening to Mayor is very important um, as a practitioner, but as a researcher, but really just in our interpersonal relationships in general. So let's, you know, be mindful of how we, we speak, <laughs> um, but also that, you know, we are providing a bit of education even in this moment that 
you know, we are going to sort of move forward in our discussion here using this. So um, please don't fast forward <laughs> because <laughs> you would have missed the point. But but anyway, so are you all ready to dive in a little bit about, you know, speaking of identities, um, sort of how you came about occupational science, occupational therapy, your work in autism, and sort of how you bridge all of that as a as an educator and an advocate. I don't even know if you call yourself an advocate, but I very much see you uh, in that role as as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I think over the last few years, I think I have um tried to to own a little bit more of an advocate role and and I hope that I present as um, as an ally and do the kind of actions that uh, are associated with um, allyship. Um, and I know accompliceship uh, is another uh, word um, that I know, uh, Ryan, you're you're a fan of at times too. Um, so yeah, so I do I do think I've leaned into that. I think for a long time I was taking some of those. I think quite problematic perspectives of I'm an objective researcher and I don't think that that's a reality in uh in any sense and I don't think that serves kind of the the communities that my research uh works for so I do think I've sort of leaned more into uh, an advocate role which is um I think an exciting kind of development in my career that I um I've enjoyed how did I get into OT and OS? Um, many, many moons ago, I, uh, I actually was um, working on a camp where there were uh, quite a few autistic children that were campers. And so that was my first exposure to um, kind of the autism community. And that's where I both learned about autism and started to learn about occupational therapy. There were some OTs that worked at the camp as well. And so um, I feel like in some ways the rest is history. I, that became a real central um, kind of focus of my interest. And, and then I started to move into clinical practice and then eventually into research. And um, But I think from those first, like the first things that stood out to me about the autistic kids at the camp I worked at were a lot of their um, kind of strengths and um, just kind of unique characteristics. And less so as kind of viewing them in a pathologizing way. And so I think that's, you know, ebbed and flowed throughout my career. You know, when you go to uh, school, often you're learning about, you know, the diagnostic criteria and mm-hmm. and really patholo- pathologizing um, the folks that we end up working with. I think we try to do that in a, in a way to promote their occupational participation, but it can it can still kind of take that uh, flavor sometimes, but um, I think I've kind of been on a journey all along of working with uh, people on the spectrum and trying to kind of promote um, strengths and and meaningful engagement in occupation. So that's, yeah, I think like the second I started working with autistic kids, I feel like OT and occupation was just kind of part of it, which... I guess uh, it was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, divine alignment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's always interesting too how our work as practitioners 
um, sort of directly influences our our research, right? But even even sort of in that research space, um, it evolves, right? Um, as new areas of practice emerge, or as um, we have these very um, sort of turbulent, traumatic kinds of things in our our social worlds that are impacting practice, our research foci also um, can evolve. And I think, you know, your work at autism specifically is a is a great example of that. Um, can you, I guess, speak to everybody a little bit about sort of emerging areas of practice, particularly around suicide risk and prevention and uh, sort of how you made, I won't call it a leap, right? Because it's not a leap. It's really a transition uh, to to that work. Yeah, well, I can, I'll take you all the way back um, because I do think it it has felt like I've made some leaps, but they all okay. are strung together, um, I think. So yeah, they're kind of transitions, but you know, my clinical practice as an OT was with young children, um, some on the spectrum, some not, but um, but I, I didn't have experience with older autistic um, youth and adults, but um, my clinical practice was an early intervention. So birth to three, sometimes five years of age. And then um, I had the opportunity to go to UNC with you all. And um, I had the, the chance to study uh, sensory processing um, in autistic uh, children. And so that kind of, that strung pretty nicely from what I had seen in my practice. And then, as, uh, you know, some of the earliest things I did um, in Dr. Grace Baranek's lab at UNC was looking at the relationship between sensory processing and uh, parent stress. And one of the biggest things that um, I noticed was that like one of the highest things that parents were stressed about was their child getting older and like thinking about adulthood and thinking about this concept of like, when I can't take care of them anymore, what's their life going to be like? And so I became really fascinated in supporting uh, youth and families um, to transition into adulthood and really starting to think about adulthood. So that felt like a pretty big leap from doing the, the sensory work. And then once I was doing my dissertation focused on the transition to adulthood, as soon as I started doing that, I kept hearing from, from families about mental health concerns and particularly suicidality uh, among autistic youth. And so I wasn't quite ready to make the leap at that time, but I was really intrigued and concerned about that. It kind of kept coming up and I was thinking, wow, that's really important and no one's really talking about that, but that's kind of outside of my expertise as an OT. And so I didn't feel like totally prepared to jump into that field, uh, but a few, years into my faculty position at the University of Utah, uh, one of my mentors said, hey, you know, I was just contacted by this parent advocate in the state who's really concerned about suicide in the autistic community here in Utah. And she thinks there needs to be more research on this topic. Is that something you would be interested in? And I was like, actually, <laughs> I'm very interested and, and it kind of has, has come up a lot in my current work, but I'm not sure I'm, you know, qualified to do that. 
And so I ended up getting, um, ultimately I've gotten two training grants to help me kind of transition. So th that's where it, it does feel like kind of a leap because it felt like an area that I really wasn't prepared to go into. And so, but having training grants was just a perfect opportunity to both start doing research in um, a super important area, but also have support for me to do a lot more learning um, in various ways to kind of get up to speed. And so, yeah, now that's kind of the main focus of most of my work is around um, suicide risk and suicide prevention. So it feels like quite a jump from the sensory processing uh, work that I started out doing, but sensory processing comes up in some of our conversations about mental health and suicide. So mm -hmm. it's not as, as far flung as I, I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is incredible. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I was um, sort of mulling over, you know, connections between sensory processing and mental health. Um, but also you're mentioning about suicidality and mental health and sort of our lack of preparation to enter into that space as occupational therapy practitioners. Um, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, many, many months ago in my training as well. I feel like mental health, like I remember having a level one in it, right? But I feel like it focused on sort of the very sort of the, the big things that you hear about in mental health, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, those sorts of things. You might have a field work in a, in a, in a clubhouse or in an inpatient psych facility or something like that, but sort of really sort of digging into and dealing with some of the, I think, um, uh, more untouched areas, if you will, because it, it seems so out of the purview of OT. But if we're going to work in mental health, we very much have to expose our students and, and sort of teach and deal with that with that part of it as well. Um, yeah, well, and I would argue that even when you're not working in mental health, um, it's it's something important for us all to be kind of really aware of. So some of the um, work that I've done in the last couple of years was involved a survey of OTs that work in any kind of pediatric setting just to see like, what do they know about suicide? Do they think that their clients could be at risk for suicide? Do they know what they would do if one of their clients was presenting with suicidality? And that was really interesting um, to see, but I think some of the overwhelming results were that people didn't feel prepared, people didn't have any training, people didn't know, um, they didn't feel confident but at the same time, when we gave them kind of case examples and asked them what they would do, most people were choosing uh, kind of best practices. And so in some ways, I think OTs are really well prepared, but we're not doing it explicitly. And so people don't have the confidence that I think they, um, they could and should to uh, just feel more comfortable working um, with their clients who who might be presenting um, suicidality. So it's interesting, but I think it's, you know, I used to think I don't wanna work in mental health setting, but I think, yeah, mental health is obviously um, comes up in every setting. And so mm -hmm. important for us to think about, even if we swear we're not interested in mental health. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting to think about though, in the sense that I think we often hear students 
go out into the world and say like, I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared. You know, I don't know how to do this. And, and there's certain things that I think we are explicit, like you will know how to help someone get to a toilet. Um, you know, but it's helpful to me as thinking as like an educator, how to help them feel prepared for things like this and say like explicitly, you do have the skills to approach a situation like this. And you can probably have the clinical reasoning to figure out best practices. Um, it's just maybe that there are certain things we just don't talk about. Like I think sex is similar in that way, but um, where when we talk about suicidality is always sort of hidden or covert um, in, in how we approach it as educators. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, those in my, in my clinical practice, I know those are situations where, I mean, my heart rate just skyrockets, I start sweating, you know, and so having like actual practice, ha practicing, having conversations about suicide, about sex, like, I think that's, it's an important part of of training that we we need to be doing just like we're practicing those toilet transfers. Yeah. yeah. And I think doing it too with um, communities of folks that we have stigmatized because of whatever cognitive related limitation we think they may have. Uh, I think too often too, we see that even when people engage you know, like these sorts of practices, whether suicide, sex or what have you, they're only doing it with people who, um, are the don't fall under that you know I, I'm sort of remembering this in the Pedretti book cognitive dysfunction umbrella you know it's like oh well, if we don't think they can sort of engage in occupation in a particular way then we just don't even approach these types of of topics with them so making sure that we also do that with you know autistic people or whatever the disability is or um, absolutely because um they are engaging in those occupations. And if they're doing it without education, support resources, right. you know, that's a failure on our part. And it's potentially, you know, putting them at, at risk for various things. So, yeah. And from your research, have you found um, sort of unique or, or specific experiences within the autistic community around suicidality as opposed to non-autistics or um, you know, other, other people? So my research is definitely still at the early stages. Um, I'm currently leading a, a community-based participatory research project. So our, the first part of our study is, uh, doing interviews with autistic people and also mental health providers who've had autistic clients and, uh, a, so we haven't started collecting those interviews yet. So I don't mm -hmm. want to speak kind of broadly, but just based on the literature, some things that are coming up that might be different than we see in um, kind of the general population can include um, something called masking or camouflaging. I don't know if you all have heard that term before, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. the concept around essentially pretending that you're not autistic or trying your trying your best to kind of hide your autistic traits and that can happen uh on purpose or it it can be you know kind of out of your control um just based on all the the societal pressures and stigmas kind of around you and um you know that's come up also with 
some of my research with like LGBTQ populations as well, like hiding your your real identity and trying to present in a way that's not in line with with your identity um, can be really harmful for for your mental health. You're kind of locking in uh, all of your kind of true self, and um, and yeah, that it it makes perfect sense that that doesn't kind of line up with uh, a healthy kind of mental state. Um, and then, you know, things like unmet needs, um, like social difficulties, like the way other people are treating uh, autistic people can come up. Um, but yeah, I'm eager to dive in with um, our interviews because there hasn't been uh, like the only thing we've seen from a qualitative perspective so far is kind of responses on open-ended surveys. So eager to do some in-depth interviewing and and dive in a little more. But one of the things that has just come up in the group that um, are of our stakeholder partners for the project is uh, what we're calling uh, chronic suicidality. So I think a lot of times people assume okay, someone's suicidal, we need to like address the issue and then they'll be fine. But a lot of the autistic people that I know, it's it's kind of a constant wavering, um, you know, a bad day, a good day, you know, and it can kind of go up and down throughout really long periods of time. And so thinking about really different ways to try to, promote suicide prevention when it's really not like a one-time thing, which is unfortunately how it sometimes is thought about, but just kind of reframing how we're even thinking about it as a more kind of regular state that needs to be kind of managed uh, by a person like kind of for over a long period of time. But I'm very eager to learn more through our interviews. It sounds like a really cool project in that you're doing the sort of participatory aspect of it as well as probably pulling in some mixed methods and and that sort of thing to to inform some of the conclusions and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, working with there's a uh, eight autistic um, folks on our team. It's just been awesome. It's amazing to just kind of live out how different doing research in this way is like I don't make decisions uh, I don't make any decisions on my own um, which I'm pretty used to like working in a in a silo up in my ivory tower and you know <laughs> submitting things to the IRB if they're okay with it um, and if it make you know if it makes sense to me based on the literature we just kind of move forward with things and um, really making sure we have um, consensus among our team and and new ideas, right? Like I, I'll say, here are some questions I was thinking about asking in the interview. And then, you know, when we leave our meeting, the interview protocol just looks totally different, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is great. Yeah. 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 You um also had mentioned about, um, you know, how these things also come up with your your work and partnerships with um, people in the LGBTQIA um, community and um, you know, in previous podcast episode I was talking about the OT Summit, right? And so at the OT Summit, and Kirby was there too, um, but also presenting on your work um, about trans people and autistic people and sort of how 
these two communities have the uh, the things you're seeing are, are also sort of coming together around mental health. And so I was, um, you know, happy to also hear you mention that because that's also another, I think, um, population of people, not that OT has shied away from it. I think sometimes we just don't think about it as, as something we have transferable skills to, um, you know, help people live their best lives. And so um, are there, yeah. I guess, any plans with that that you can you can share right now or not? I know we have to, you know, protect our intellectual property. So <laughs> no, I have, I have, I have nothing to protect. Um, <laughs> I don't. That's that's not my mo. Um, but uh, yeah. So I, I guess that's speaking of you know what we were talking about earlier with sort of career leaps. Um, this is another leap that I just didn't envision for myself that um, I've really uh enjoyed and found um found to be great kind of avenue for additional research so i was seeing kind of over and over just working with autistic youth and adults um and doing doing research with uh, those communities that there was just sort of anecdotally uh quite a few autistic people who were using they, them pronouns, um, identifying as binary, genderqueer, um, agender, uh, trans. And then, um, so and there are some autistic people who identify with a term called autigender, um, which is essentially, my understanding of it is that they perceive that uh, autism is such a central part of their identity that they, can't really they don't really associate with um, other gender identities and so autism like essentially becomes their gender I hope I'm I hope I'm describing that right it's sort of oh. a newer term for me yeah that's so but, interesting um, yes yeah, so uh, I was seeing this kind of over and over just in my in my everyday life just engaging with um the autistic community and then um, uh, a group that I work with at University of Utah, um, several people were interested in looking at trans uh, suicide risk. And so I volunteered to sort of lead the way on, um, on a new study because I thought it would be a great opportunity for me to learn more about the trans community because I wanted to better serve and better kind of engage with the autistic community that that I work with, because you know, there was a lot going on in in the autism realm that I felt unprepared for, and so I thought, kind of diving into a, a trans specific project would give me a great sort of learning opportunity and also help me understand sort of some intersectional uh, suicide risk and prevention kind of thoughts, and so. That's really, that was my motivation for starting to do some work with the trans community. And then of course, like once I started doing that work, now I'm super interested and kind of engaged with uh, with that community. And, and so I kind of view it as like just an additional area of research, but interestingly, you know, one of our, we had, we did several focus groups with trans people, <laughs> at least one of the participants identified as autistic, and and then um, in my you know in my trans uh, it, not trans in my 
uh, stakeholder group that's working with me on the CBPR project, several of them identify as trans or non-binary. And so, um, so yeah, I'm just kind of seeing this overlap and even like there's a trans uh, grad student who's been working with us on the trans project. And whenever, uh, when I first met with them, I said, you know, just so you know, like I'm kind of new to trans research, I'm still learning. I, I ended up here kind of from the autism side and they said, oh, that's funny because, you know, I spent a lot of time in the trans community and I've learned a lot about autism. And so like Ooh. people are kind of seeing that from both directions. Mm -hmm. And there is some research that's been published now to show that there are kind of higher rates of um, gender divergence in the neurodivergent and autistic uh, population. So yeah, so it's kind of an interesting overlap that then so yeah, I'm kind of doing studies right now with those communities separately. So I have an autism study and I have a trans study, but they're not, you know, it's not a two separate circles. There's some definite overlap in the Venn diagram and some similar kind of patterns I think we'll see of um, risk factors and protective factors. So those are some things I'm interested in, but yeah, not not there yet. Um, not because of protecting intellectual property, but because <laughs> I don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> so I have a, maybe a real talk to the front question for you, um, in that you, you don't identify as autistic. You also don't identify as trans. Um, and so how do you, how do you navigate that? How do you manage and, and appropriately step into those spaces as, as a cis woman who is, uh, you know, not, autistic as well. <laughs> yes, that is a great question. And it's definitely something that um, I think is really important to kind of think about. And I, I try to think about it regularly. Um, for me, one of the biggest things is like listening to the community. So, um, you know, the first thing we did when I started doing um, you know, I got on board with this trans uh, suicide risk project. First of all, there was a the trans graduate student I mentioned who um, someone connected me with, and they were really eager to kind of participate in the study and you know uh, on the on the planning end and give feedback along the way. So, like having someone on board um, who's been like just an awesome resource and team member. Um, who's uh, from that community has been great. And um, I will tell you, I've offered many times for them to take the lead on things, but they are an MD PhD student who have like a million things going on. So like, <laughs> that's, you know, like I certainly like, I, I if I'm happy to pass the, the torch to anyone, but like, I haven't found that person yet. Um, but it did come up in, so we did focus groups. It came up in the focus groups that trans people should be doing this research. And so, you know, that's, that's a priority for me, like figuring out if there's ways for us to kind of support trans people to do this research. Or, um, we also asked folks for like their research ideas and, um, we're going to share those with, um, publicly so that like, yes, all these ideas that the community 
came up with. Like, I don't want to hold and kind of protect. I want to, like, mm-hmm. if there's other people um, who are better suited to, to do that research, I do want them to do that. Um, and so, yeah, so I've sort of thought about stuff like that. And in the autism space, it's it comes up a lot. And there's a growing number of autistic people who are becoming researchers, which is super exciting. And Mm -hmm. um, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, several folks um, and yeah, trying to kind of do what I can to kind of promote that. Um, Yeah, I think it's an interesting balance. And so I'm, I'm really happy that I work with the, uh, a journal autism and adulthood, where we have like a lot of autistic people on our board, a lot of, um, you know, several of our editors who are adjudicating manuscripts are autistic. We have at least one autistic person review every paper, um, whether they're a researcher or not. Um, so sometimes they are a researcher and so they're giving their research perspective as well as their personal perspective. And then, um, but sometimes they're a lay person who's not a researcher um, and they're just reading the paper to see if it's respectful, if it seems important and meaningful and stuff like that. So trying trying to do a lot to kind of promote more community kind of ownership of, of research and say and what research is about, but, you know, I do sort of think sometimes about like, okay, is that like, is there a point where I should stop doing research personally? Like I'm not interested in doing research about cis white women. Other people do that research, <laughs> so, you know, like, like, I don't know what the research is. Like if you can only do research about your own identity or community, like, I don't know what that research would be for me, but um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how you all think about that. Um, but I think for me, no matter what, like I'm never trying to, I'm trying, and I'm trying to do this like as little as possible. You know, I can't, I can't say everything I've done in the past is perfect, but like more and more rely on community perspectives and trying to like raise up the voices of, people in the communities that um, research is about. Yeah, it really sounds like, um, you know, I think this comes up a lot in community work as well, just in general is like who has control and who has decision-making power and and what are the skills that are needed to bring into the team? And and I think that, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that we only have to research our own identities or if we need more <laughs> research on cis white women, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think that 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 is a real because it's like we want energy and we want time and we want resources put towards these really hard questions that Mm -hmm. don't have a lot of people or resources being put behind them. And so how do you step into those realms? And I like to use the metaphor of like, I want to be the wrench, not the hand turning the wrench. And, you know, it's like, I want to be something that can be helpful to the community without necessarily being the one deciding how it's turning or how quickly or how hard or what direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to be the skills that are mobilized by the community and directed by the community. Um, you know, I, I work in historically black communities with older adults. And so that's been a learning curve for me in a lot of ways and learning how to 
to pull back on, you know, my leadership and sort of um, a primary directive <laughs> sort of approach um, that I'd been in, in sort of just general aging realm because I had that experience. And so mm -hmm. um, learning how to become the wrench and not the hand, um, I think is just something every researcher really needs to do in any sort of human researches research endeavors um, in a lot of ways. I also feel like we need to send a, a little recommendation to AJOT to have um, some reviewers with lived experience on um, these things. And I feel like we might have an associate editor on the call here with us. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it is definitely something to to explore with, with AJOT, but AJOT is also not historically a, a journal that publishes a lot of qualitative research either. And so I think mm. under the helm of um, Dr. Stacey Reynolds, we'll We'll start to see a lot of things um, shift with AJOT, um, but I, I really, really appreciate when um, your your honesty about um, sort of your your positionality and the work that you do, and and also Ryan appreciate the metaphor that you use, and it obviously makes me consider my my own work, especially that I share the racial and ethnic identification of the people that I work with, but I am still entering into these spaces as somebody who is a member of the ivory tower right so having to negotiate the fact that i am a you know unc <laughs> researcher that is you know working with um you know black brown asian and indigenous people with intellectual developmental disabilities and making sure that they um are really leading the work Right. But I'm the person who's just really providing the the resource, but letting them really shape what it is that we're doing. And um, I think the other thing that that came up with me, too, is that even in allowing them to lead, uh, that it's not always to people that are in higher ed. Right. So having research partners with intellectual developmental disabilities who might be a Ph.D. student or, you know, a master's student and and letting those who are not in college and, you know, living and doing awesome things in the community know that you don't have to be associated with the university to take lead in something. So making sure that we're sharing power in that way, um, too, that has sort of been an interesting thing to watch unfold in my, in my own work. Um, so I so, feel like, yeah. I feel like, I don't know if I can say this. Uh, <laughs> uh oh <laughs> i feel like can we say you're part of the ebony tower <laughs> like is that the, the ebony tower <laughs> um i mean there there is this sort of like black intellectual movement i kind of i don't know maybe we could call it the ebony tower <laughs> <laughs> i don't know when you said i was like ivory tower that just like i don't know it just doesn't match with me in my brain and how i think about you and academia like yeah it is academia but i just i don't see you as like the ivory tower <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely try to resist that identity at, at all costs. But I mean, the reality of it is, is when you when you're a professor, I mean, you can't I cannot divorce myself from that at, at all. And so yeah. while I am thankful, my research partners who actually most people have commented that their experience on in my project so far has not been like anything else they've done before. Um, that I can maintain that and don't fall into the the traps that we've been socialized to do. Because um, yeah. I mean, I will 
inevitably make mistakes along the way, right? Because I've been trained in a very specific way. Um, but I, I hope that um, even if I do, that my partners feel comfortable enough to be like, girl, uh-uh, that's not how we do things over yeah. here. You know it. <laughs> and <laughs> um, that's like, that's right. Really hard to get to that point. And I think that's like something I'm, I'm learning as I'm doing this community engaged work. And I know you two do as well. Like building that rapport is the, the most important thing that you can do. And I guess that reflects our practice as well, but like trusting the people who you're working with to tell you when you're doing something wrong mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. I think a skill that I, I hope I'm there with my team and but I could imagine it's it's not in every in every project that uh, community members are involved with. No. There's a lot of tokenism out there. Um, and I think that like like Clea, you were saying the the systems and the socialization that we've been, it's like you have to build really strong relationships and trust with people. You can't just throw them into an IRB process and say this is a year-long research project and we're gonna start doing interviews in three months. You know, this is that's not how people work. That's not how power sharing works, but the university wants that cycle and that timeline and right. and moving through that process. And so I feel like with these types of topics and, and groups, like suicide is such a, you need to have trust, you need to have relationship building. And then with groups that have been historically oppressed and excluded, we, we can't just jump in and be like, we're here to help, you know, like a savior. Yeah. It has to be a, a trusted sort of relationship that allows them to see that you aren't trying to, to be the, the stage or the lead even that you're really trying to be the wrench um, that yeah. they get to to decide and then they can tell you like oh your wrench isn't fitting you're not the right wrench right <laughs> I need right. a I need a I don't know what wrench sizes are four sixteenths or something <laughs> I don't know <laughs> you're using like, a metric one and there's whatever yeah yeah and yeah. it's like I feel like researchers are a lot less willing to hear that too it's like no 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 we don't need you you're you're metric not imperial or something right Right. No. Or you see these folks that are, and I cannot recall the, the article right off the top of my head right now. I'll have to find it and put it in the comments when we, when we air, but this, this idea of being a tourist in the research, right? It's like, oh, I happen mm -hmm. to be at this place at this time and this seems kind of cool. So I'm going to like throw my head in it. And like you said, do it a year and try to move on. Like that's not, that's not the point of, of this kind of work. And if you're not really ready uh, or committed to partnering long-term um, and, and building coalition in these communities, like go be a tourist at Disney World where you're supposed to be, like not <laughs> not in research, you know, this, this right. ain't Disney. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh my well, God. Well, and I think that that's true in the sense also, like it's not just about like your focus, like I think one of the things that I've loved about your research trajectory, Anne, is that you've sort of taken a population that you care a lot about and have built a lot of relationship with and heard the nuance of their experience and, and really gone in directions that seem like leaps, but ultimately are really enriching your understanding of the population that you're still continuing to walk alongside. And, and I think some researchers don't do that. They just focus on diagnoses, they focus on intervention development, and they don't really 
like move with the winds of the community that they're in and they just mm -hmm. want to sit there and just like motorboat through instead of being a sailboat let's see how many metaphors <laughs> we can come up with for this. i love it <laughs> but yeah you know it i think it is counter to a lot of what we're told in academia that we're supposed to do like we're supposed to have this really tight research statement about what we do and you know, some people are like, this is the method I use. And I, and I look at a lot of different things, or some people are like, this is the, you know, the specific community I work. And I'm like, I felt like I, so I actually was asked to give a talk about my research trajectory in the fall, last fall. And it took, it was really, I was like, I don't have like a central theme or idea or, you know, and then I realized I was like, oh, my whole story is, I hope it is listening to the community and like following what's kind of important and, and trying to make progress that's going to, you know, feed back into the community. So mm -hmm. that's not the, the tight, typical tenure statement, I think, but um, <laughs> I think it's where I've ended up. And I got tenure, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And I think that is that this is pump. essential to CBPR, and and I think academics miss that so much because they're trying to fit it in a model where CBPR doesn't fit. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. And you know, following um, different funding streams or whatever to try to make that fit. And I think your work too is an example that this work is fundable, you know, it's like you, you, you have a, have a K award, you know, and, and also doing work that speaking of, you know, following the community, then you have all sorts of media coverage about, about what you've done because it's stuff that matters, right? It impacts real lives. And it's not just, I'm going to add to a data set and hope that somebody else picks it up somewhere and applies it in a very, very meaningful way. And so, um, I think you're definitely uh, to think about what Ryan said an exemplar of of how to do that, as well as how to get tenure doing that um, for our <laughs> our academic <laughs> listeners. It is possible. Um, so hopefully, if we're still doing this in three years, I'll be able to share a similar story <laughs> of getting promotion <laughs> and tenure with doing uh, community engaged work. So, or you know, Girl, if you don't get actually, tenure, we're both leaving. So, <laughs> listen. Um, yeah listen I, look, I can't even say anything else about it that's 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 what will happen <laughs> like I will I will be done with that and take my my talents elsewhere we're gonna go so. start our own university and call it Ebony Tower <laughs> <laughs> Ebony U <laughs> Ebony U <laughs> It's interesting because I think we've got a really nice sandwich in the sense that we began the episode talking about listening to mirror, particularly around language, but now we're sort of talking about that same sort of strategy in the research world, um, in the sense that you're listening and really engaging with your, your population and the community that you're working with to really make sure you're moving in the direction they want you to move and answering questions the way you they want you to do it and and or even doing the research and the methodology of the research you're listening to mirror all of that not just even the language and i think that a lot of times when people particularly when people go from practitioner to researcher they often sort of forget that skill as a practitioner that we oh. we are taught and, and are trying to learn so well that as researchers we get that power and we get like oh this is my research and i own it and 
And we forget that that listening to mirror is actually a really important part of the research process, particularly in community-based practice. But even, even somebody who's doing like big data research, you know, you still need to understand how to look at that data from the community's perspective. And mm. quantitative research is not immune from community control. Mm. Um, you know, just because you're doing quantitative big data research doesn't mean you shouldn't be involving community and and the people who have lived experience about the thing that you are actually researching um because their quantitative uh, analysis is not um objective in all of its ways that it people think it can be <laughs> it absolutely is not and um our the, the stakeholder team for um for the cbpr project we just were invited to consult on a big data analysis project so um, and the, the team is super excited about it. So yeah, they, That's you know, great. I think a lot of times we start with kind of qualitative research because we really want to like dive into what the community's saying, but, um, yeah, I think there are definitely opportunities for stakeholder engaged research that are using other, other methods that we do often think of as objective, which is a fallacy for sure. Mm-hmm. According to Dewey and philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've read any Dewey, <laughs> well, all roads lead to Dewey. <laughs> awesome. Well, we really appreciate everything you've shared with us, uh, Dr. Kirby. Always a, a pleasure to to chat with you about everything. Honestly, um, there are any, I guess, final uh, words of encouragement or just advice or what have you for for our listeners well i guess for your listeners i know you have a a diverse um body of uh of listeners audience and um you know i think we talked a lot about following uh the the voices and perspectives of community members in research but i think in um in practice just the same like we need to be listening to the communities that we're working with, the the patients that we're working with in hospitals, um, you know, and and making it making it work um, in in those various situations. Because if if we're not listening to the people that we're supposed to be serving, then I don't really know what we're doing. So I guess that's <laughs> my. <laughs> You're just playing. You're on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> a tourism, uh, a tourist in your research, and apparently a tourist in your practice. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anne. It's always wonderful, and I love a researcher who keeps it real. And I think you're definitely one of those researchers. So, um, it's always great to talk to you and and have fun in Ireland. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, as you said, if there's any listeners out there in Ireland or elsewhere in uh, in Europe that um, have overlapping interests with me, I'd love to hear from you. And uh, thank you so much for having me. It was an awesome experience. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. And until next time, y'all keep fighting. <laughs> <laughs>